in the same county where I was convicted of a crime, the same jail that I walked through in handcuffs, I ended up with an all out key. The same judge who sentenced me became my colleague. You know, I laugh sometimes when I walk through the back doors of the courthouse leading to the jail of how I used to be escorted to court from jail. Now I literally had a pass to get through. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Deanna Hoskins. She's the president and CEO at Just Leadership USA, which is an important national nonprofit led by directly impacted people. It's dedicated to reducing the prison populations in the United States by educating and empowering the people and communities most impacted to drive policy reform that builds thriving, sustainable, and healthy communities. Deanna was formerly senior policy advisor at the Department of Justice, and her career involves local and state work in criminal justice as well. Deanna has a truly amazing story about how she turned her life around and became a key leader on these issues. You will definitely want to listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Deanna Hoskins and Just Leadership USA. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Deanna, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Deanna Hoskins, President and CEO of Just Leadership USA, which is a national organization founded by and operated by formerly incarcerated individuals to train and empower communities of directly impacted people so that they could self-organize and disrupt the systems of oppression that had continued to marginalize them. That is a big challenge you've set yourself on, isn't it? There are millions of people in jail in this country in various levels, mostly state, I think, uh, some federal. And a lot of people got terms that were too long. And uh, we got a mess on our hands. There's been some attempts to reform it, but it's politically difficult to make progress, right? Because you said it's run by formerly incarcerated people, I think everyone's going to want to know, okay, what happened? How are you, who is running something and and a prominent political person now, how were you a formerly incarcerated person? What's your story? So my incarceration was a direct result of a substance abuse I had. Back in the 1990s, during the crack epidemic, like so many others, social, what they call gateway drug, marijuana, um, not realizing I had a imbalance in my body that uh, was addictive, addictive personality. Started experimenting with cocaine, crack cocaine, ended up with an addiction to crack cocaine, and ultimately was sentenced 
on a theft charge of stealing checks, trying to get more drugs, direct results. My initial term, because I hadn't had any interaction with the criminal justice system, I probably was the quickest probation violator in the country. I was sentenced in March of 99 to five years, a term of five years community supervision, which equates to what we know as probation. And by November, I had actually violated that probation. But I'll, I'll be honest, I violated that probation the day I was sentenced. Um, part of that sentence was in front of the judge, do not use drugs, take care of your kids, get a job. I was high in court. Um, actually, I was late to court because I had been using, right? Even in the midst of consequences, I could not control the use. Here in Ohio, where I'm from, they had started an alternative program for people who violated probation of you might have a prison sentence, but we'll give you an opportunity to go to this behavior modification called a community-based correctional facility, which means you didn't have to leave your city. It was um, in your community, but you were incarcerated, still had all the rules and regulations and had to serve a time plus aftercare again and still maintain community supervision once you were released. I ultimately was sent to River City Correctional Facility. It was a four to six month program. Um, You had to follow all the things. The catch to that was you can take this community-based correctional facility and do the aftercare and everything that is incorporated to do. But if you fail, you still go to prison and do that whole prison sentence and none of that time counts. I didn't understand the harms of the criminal justice system and the way that the rules roll. I was fortunate enough, once I went through that program, did aftercare, built me a support system of other women who were in recovery pro- anonymous recovery programs, built the infrastructure, slowly got my kids returned to me. And that's 22 years ago. Um, I've been clean and sober for 22 years now. Um, but it was, a, it was not an easy feat. Once I was convicted of that felony charge, there are harms associated with incarceration and a term of incarceration. But the biggest harm is once you walk into the courthouse and you are convicted and found guilty and you walk back out a convicted felon, your whole life changed. Where I could work changed. I always was able to maintain jobs. Back then it was data entry. I had actually took data entry in high school. So I could get a job at the drop of a hat. When I walked out of court that day, my whole life changed, uh, where I could work, where I could actually live, because now I was a convicted felon. Nobody wanted to know what type of felony. That was when we were using blanket clauses of, oh my God, you're a felon. So even enrolling in college, I got a job and I knew I had to outweigh this felony conviction. I was getting turned down for so many things. And the only thing I knew to start balancing it was education. I had to get a degree in some kind of way. So I wrote in a two-year liberal arts program just to build the confidence of, can I even do this at this point? I, I felt so hopeless because I was turned down of so many opportunities. And one condition of my release was to be able to take care of my kids and maintain a job. So while I served that six months at River City, I still was on community supervision being held accountable. So I still had to follow through with that sentence. And when jobs were turning me away, it was like, how am I going to be successful, right? How am I going to take care of these kids, get out of the system to be able to provide and be self-sufficient for me and my children? So I rolled in a two-year liberal arts program. It was a very small program, um, but it was an accredited program. 
made it through that program and built relationships with my professors who encouraged me to go on to a four-year college to get my bachelor's degree in social work, which I did. And I was able, I tell people, one of the things that made college easy for me was I took my life experience in that field of dealing with substance abuse, family reunification, and all those other traumas. And those were the stories I wrote about in my papers. Those were the experiences that I used from a social worker's perspective to understand the psychology. And once I finished my social work degree, you know, I was like, you got to keep going. So I went on and got my master's in criminal justice from the University of Cincinnati, only to finally get to a place where in my lived experience of incarceration, substance abuse started to outweigh my degree. I always tell people my degree gets me in the door of the interview because they put it on there as a qualifier. But my lived experience and how I've been able to navigate the two and merge them into my professional has really is what has landed me the different positions I've had to climb the career ladder. That's a remarkable story, to be honest. And I think very few people make as much of themselves after having that kind of hiccup early in life that that sometimes takes you down the wrong path forever, right? Yeah. One of the things that I know for me is it was building that support network. That's why we talk about support and family, connection to people, because people will help you overcome trials and tribulations when you struggle, right? Yeah. Um, and it was that. It, it was really having other women that I could call and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. When my normal behavior was to just go get high, I'm struggling with this. I want to get high. Being able to be honest, I want to get high. And I tell people this because I think this is something that a lot of people don't understand around addiction. I'm not clean and sober because I don't like to get high. I'm clean and sober because of the consequences that come along after I use. It outweighed the benefits of I'm not the person who goes to the bar and have a drink and just, oh, it was a good time. No, I, I go down this one way road and a point of no return. So I understand where I fall short and what my issue is. But the one thing of turning your life around after those is really a support system. And what I'm finding out, so many people don't have a support system. Um, and it's really a struggle, especially if you don't have the knowledge. Yeah. Well, I congratulate you on, on making that path. Okay. You get your master's degree. Tell me about your path through the workforce. How does it lead to where you are right now? So actually I worked at a treatment center and, and I'll share that my path has taken a path that was lenient to people with felony convictions or lived experience. So my first job after release was at a local treatment center because I was clean and sober. I was an admissions clerk. I did data entry. And from there, I remember asking for a raise. And the lady in HR said, well, what is the comparable salary to other treatment centers? So I'm calling other treatment centers to find out, hey, how much do you pay your admission clerks? And I called this one lady at a center called Cheney Allen here in Ohio that I had actually been a resident of in and out when I was through my treatments. And she told me, she was like, why don't you come in for an interview? I'm like, I'm not looking for a job. I'm just trying to get more money where I'm at. She's like, but still come in for an interview. So I did. I went in for an interview and she offered me a position of a case manager of working with the women 
Um, Cheney Allen is a drug treatment center, was a 90-day residential for women and their children under five. I actually had went in and out of that treatment, and I tell people part of my addiction story, the last year of my addiction in 96, I was pregnant with my middle child, and I ran in and out of Cheney Allen nine times in one year. Thank God that the lady who ran that center kept the door open for me. She would always tell me it's because you're pregnant. So I I go, I become a case manager for Cheney Allen, and I see that the women are struggling with housing, even when they're released, returning back to the communities or being not even having housing. So I started talking about how housing was a need, found a little transitional house, a mom and pop shop. They were federally funded. They wanted to create a transitional house for men and women who struggled with substance abuse problem, and they needed to build the program out. Applied, got the position as the case manager for the House of Hope here in Cincinnati. Again, moving from there, just kept moving. And I I stayed in this field of either reentry. And what I tell people is every area in my career where I saw a need, my next job focus was in that area. So I saw the need in housing. I went to housing. I saw the need in services for people leaving prison. So I went to the local community action agency, Second Chance Program, and worked there. But I always had this weird dream of working in a prison system. Don't ask me why. Um, Because I saw people leaving prison and they weren't connected to the community. They were being released into homelessness. So I started applying at the prison system in Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana Donut. And Indiana calls me. And I'll never forget, I got the message and I told one of my coworkers, like, Indiana called me for an interview. And she was like, well, go. I was like, I'm a convicted felon. I can't work at a prison. She's like, well, just go to the interview. We can never interview too much, right? Interviewing is a skill. So I drive to Indiana. I get in this interview. I got a copy of my police report. I've built a portfolio of my degrees and my work. And I sit down and I interview for this job. It felt like an interrogation because they're on one side of the table. I'm on the other. It's like three people. They walk me through the prison yard and they just said, we'll be in touch. About two days later, the assistant warden at that prison called me. She was like, hey, you know, they told me you had this awesome interview. They really want to recommend you. But they also told me you're a convicted felon. I'm like, yeah. She said, I pulled your application. You didn't lie on the application. She was like, I'm just going to push it through and see what happens. So they pushed my application through. Her boss, who was the warden, called me and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to push this through down to the state to see through the HR department with the state to see what happens. He said, but I truly believe you don't judge people on where they've been. You judge them on where they're going. Ultimately, get this job in the state of Indiana, move my kids to Indiana, working as a case manager at Pendleton Correctional Facility. Two weeks into the training, we're going through all, you know, how you act in prison, self-defense, if you get in a confrontation with an individual in a prison. But we had to do fingerprints. And I remember the training guy saying, hey, today is the day we're doing fingerprints. If you got any criminal background, you need to let us know. So you know, no biggie to me. I'm like, hey, I got a felony conviction. And he's like, what? Can't work in a prison. Now I've relocated my kids and everything to Indiana. It was the starting day. It was my daughter's birthday. I was at orientation and he says, I got to make some phone calls. There's no way. He said, I've been doing this for 30 years. There's no way you can work in a prison. And I remember I was ready to like lose it, but I went and sat on the steps, prayed, And he came back and he said, in my 30 years, I've never seen it, but you were approved by the governor's office. 
Wow. So went on with that job, was on that job for about six or seven months and became the lead case manager for case managers who had been there for years. And it was, I remember the warden saying her lived experience and understanding of what it takes to have reentry has actually become a leading. And I became the lead case manager in the state of Indiana in the Department of Corrections. Eight months into that job, I was hired by the governor's office of community-based and uh, faith-based and community initiatives in Indiana to implement programs across seven counties for people returning from incarceration to those counties and had a partner with grassroots organizations. Again, did it, love what I did. And one day was just at a conference and the grant was coming to an end in Indiana. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I laid across the bed and opened my computer and was like, let me look back in Ohio and see what's going on. And there was a posting for a director of reentry in the same county where I was raised and born, where I was convicted of a crime, where I served time. Wow. I had already applied for a pardon and the governor of Ohio gave me a pardon while I was living in Indiana. So I had this pardon. And so I said, I'm going to apply for this job, but I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to write the three county commissioners who you'll have to report to of, you know, what I've done, what I've been doing. And, and I sent that in. And I remember coming to the interview, thinking I bombed it, crying afterwards, ended up getting a job. And I remember the commissioners telling me that the job was actually slated for someone else. But when I came in, they couldn't deny the experience and knowledge that was needed. So in the same county where I was convicted of a crime, the same jail that I walked through in handcuffs, I ended up with an all out key. The same judge who sentenced me became my colleague. You know, I laugh sometimes when I walk through the back doors of the courthouse leading to the jail of how I used to be escorted to court from jail. Now I literally had a pass to get through. And then ultimately was recruited by the Obama administration to go to the Department of Justice to manage the federal government's investment in second chance funding around corrections and reentry. And now at just leadership. You know, I can't help but being completely moved by that story. You know, it's it's kind of miraculous, but it's not miraculous, as you know. It's a product of a lot of hard work and some luck and wise decisions by other people. What, what do you think it was when you were doing some of those jobs and getting promoted quickly? What were you, was it just the education that you brought to it? Was the way you comport yourself? Was it that that connection, that long history in the field and really knowing it, what was making it so that people were so quickly spotting that you ought to be moved up into more and more responsibility? So I, I think it was a combination of things. And I say this when I give motivation speeches everywhere. No matter what you do in your life, no matter the lifestyle, even if you're in criminal activity, every skill set is not a liability. Your responsibility is to figure out which ones are assets. When you're addicted to drugs and you're hanging in what's been identified as the meanest streets of a certain city and you survive, you've learned how to communicate on a whole nother level because you've had to talk yourself out of some situations that actually could have been life-threatening. What I learned, what people would call in the streets a gift for gab, I knew how to sell myself. I knew how to sell my skill set just as if I was hustling on the streets trying to sell a product. And, and I realized 
that I needed to be educated on what I was going. So I, I tell people this all the time. I may go for jobs I've never had to challenge myself, but I don't come to those interviews uneducated, right? I'm going to be honest with you. Most of my skills and certifications came because I looked at job postings and said, what do I need to get there to qualify? And I remember being in the Indiana Department of Governor's office looking at a federal job and saying, well, what do you got to do to get that type of money? Or how do you do? And I started looking at the skill sets and certifications and went after them. So I would always tell my bosses, I don't need an increase in money. I need you to invest in me in training because training to pay off in money. So Indiana actually educated me and prepared me for the federal government because they, when the governor, when there were lockdowns on raises and increase, I just asked to be able to take training opportunities, right? I, I asked to educate myself. Even when I was at the federal government, nobody used their training dollars. Everybody had arrived at the federal government. I used everybody's training dollars and went to Georgetown and got a certification in project management, right, on the weekends. I, I invested in governmental policy writing, how to understand policy, cultural competency. I continue to invest in me that will actually help me propel in my job of a position that can help my community and my people. That is coming from a certain kind of grit, a certain kind of resilience, a certain kind of ambition. Where do you trace that to? Is that like something that is just native to you? Is that something that you had to build over time? Is that mentors? Where is that? coming from? For one, I I think it comes from family. Again, no matter what your lifestyle was or what you were invested in, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No matter what, you know, I have my family members have, they own beauty salons, nightclubs, medical assistance um, companies, construction companies. But I also think it comes from, I was, I tell people I was the only child, right? So I had to get creative. I had to always fit in somewhere. But there was this expectation that my mother had of me being successful. And I think in the beginning, it started that I had disappointed my parents so bad. I had disappointed my children. You know, my children ended up in the foster care. And and there's this societal thing about a woman who's incarcerated, uh, failing as a woman and not being able to stand up to that. So and, and I think it was just this determination that I was not going to be held hostage. I, drugs had held me hostage so long I had given power to a substance and a lifestyle that I wanted ownership of my life and the, the outcome of my life and the trajectory to actually be an example to my children. Now, understanding that kids make their own choices. So I have three children, two boys and a girl. My boys have encountered the criminal justice system, but I'm watching the morals while they were involved in this lifestyle, as they're getting older, I'm watching these morals come out now. This, this respect, this, hey, mom, I need to sit down and talk to you because I need to do this. And them not being held hostage because they have a felony conviction because they see me and how I've overcome it. So we're having these conversations. And as whereas with my daughter, who was the child who was nine months old when I was incarcerated, she's finishing up her last year of pre-med that that's her trajectory and her determination. So I I think it's just making a decision and sticking to it and knowing that I was no longer willing to let myself down, but also not my family and my children. How rare are you? (laughs) I'm not. 
How many other women and men who were convicted felons went back, got a real education, climbed up through a different ladder than you did? Like, do you see that all over the place or is that super rare? I see it everywhere. And I think this is where society has written us off after having a record and not paying attention. So we have Tara Simmons down in Seattle who was um, suffered with drug addiction, went to treatment, served three years in prison, who's now a state rep. I have Teresa Hodge, who was just nominated 50 over 50 by Forbes, created an algorithm that's going to outcast the criminal background to give people with criminal backgrounds opportunities. You know, Lewis Conway ran for a city um, council seat down in Texas. Anthony Witherspoon, who was the mayor of Marietta, Mississippi, Man, you know, I got a a guy on my team named Ronald Simpson Bay, who's my director of alumni and outreach and engagement, did 27 years on a wrongful conviction, but just turning his life around. There's there's, um, Stanley Adris, who's employed by John Hopkins Hospital, went to to prison as a youth um, for marijuana and created what's called prison sales to PhD. He's an endocrinologist at John Hopkins. So, man, I'm just one of many. Sometimes I feel you're given, we all have a mission and you're given an opportunity. And I always said, I remember being in Ohio and remember saying, I have to be the poster child. I have to be the poster child because society has counted us out. And not only have they counted us out, I saw where even after incarceration, they were focusing us or railroading us into nothing but construction, waitress, event planning jobs, thinking to be a senior policy advisor, a state representative, right? A a doctor at John Hopkins Hospital. People never thought that these were the things people could do who had encountered the criminal justice system. But here's my challenge. If you say the criminal justice system is a department of corrections and rehabilitation, then do you really mean that when we show up? And I'll give you an example. I went back to my judge before I became the director of reentry in the county and we became friends, I went back supporting a girlfriend who had relapsed and ended up going back to prison, to jail. And I was in court and the judge recognized me. He was like, hey, I sentenced you. I'm like, yeah. And we talked. He said, what are you doing? And I told him. So he said, come have a one-on-one conversation with me. And I remember having a one-on-one conversation with him in his chambers And at the time, my goal was to go back and work at the correctional facility I served time at. And here was his exact words to me. A crackhead would never be nothing more than a crackhead. That is not a good attitude. But if you were a judge who sentenced me to get corrected and rehabilitated, do you not even believe in the system that you work for? No, you don't. So fast forward years later, right? Totally apologized for that comment. Good. We became really good friends. I mean, we've done some op-eds together and news articles, but I challenge judges. I challenge people in power. Do you really believe in the system that you in or are you in those positions simply for the power that is brought with them? And that is why we're in this moment we're in because people in position of power have just taken on those roles for the power, not for the good of the people, or which people are you think you're protecting? It's complicated. Yeah. It is. Very complicated. So tell me about this being pulled into the Obama administration 
into the Department of Justice of all places, right? That's a significant institution in this country. You're headed there. Tell me about that job and how it felt. One, it was unbelievable. Uh, I think I was more terrified than anything. And here was the reason why. Because when I got there, you know, there had been people working in the federal government for 20, 30 years. This was, you know, in the DMV, that the government is the biggest employer. So it was unreal that I was in this position managing the same funding that I had been a recipient of in the community to get my life up around. But when I got there and the colleagues that I met who had 20, 30 years really took me under their arms, under their wings, kind of helping me navigate the federal system. But I was almost a celebrity to them. And I'll tell you why. Not because of my criminal record, but because I was a black woman who came in at a leadership level in the federal government. And they had been in government for years and couldn't make it to that level. And here I walked through the door at this level. And then the connection I think the most surreal moment, there were two moments. There was this Federal Interagency Reentry Council that A.G. Holder had created, and Loretta Lynch continued. And I was pulled into the Federal Interagency Council as a prominent member of that advisory board. And we go to a meeting at Maine Justice. This is the office where Loretta Lynch is at the time the A.G. sits. And we're in this huge conference room. All these A.G.'s pictures are on the wall. And they tell me, sit at the table because you're part of the advisory board. And in walks A.G. Loretta Lynch. And I'm like, get the hell out of here. Like, <laughs> like, no secret service and all that. I had been at events in communities that she showed up, but it was secret service. But no, you're at a table brainstorming with the attorney general of the United States as a convicted felon. Right. And not only that, she knows who you are. And she points to you on specifics of what she wants your assistance to help her with around women incarceration. The second time, um, there would be meetings at the executive office, the Eisenhower building, which is the building outside the White House. We always did meetings there with Valerie Jarrett and other people. But this specific time, we went to a meeting and we went through the main gate of the White House because the meeting was in the White House in the Oval. And I was like, I can't believe this is my life. But what I realized is that when you have an administration and the objective is the same from the top up to the top down, that's exactly what happens. You work together, right? Um, but what it afforded me was to understand how federal government works. So I now I knew how local government worked. I knew how state government. And then I started understanding how federal government worked. So those were the opportunities and the fact that I had the ability around the funding that was coming out of the federal government to be more inclusive of people impacted by the system to play a part in advisory boards. So I was instrumental in creating advisory boards. If it was around children of incarcerated parents, my argument was, why do we only have academia? Why don't we have children who had incarcerated parents? You know, Ebony Underwood, William Underwood was incarcerated for 30 years of her life. She's been fighting for the freedom of her dad. Why is she sitting at this table? So I was able to start making impact in roles to get directly impacted people's voices to the table at federal government um, and then pushing to have that replicated across the states. Must have been pretty exciting. How did the change in administration impact 
your role? What was different after new regime came in? So this is how I explain it. I felt like I was on a honeymoon and then the domestic violence started. And, and I'll say that specifically here. During the Obama administration, we were very strategic in how we communicated as the federal government out to the world. So we were very we were very aware of language. We removed Carol Mason, who was the assistant AG at the time. We, we could not use language of inmates, convicts, offenders. We had to say people in our grant proposals, everything. I remember sitting in my office and a memo came out the White House and I had to write my grants and it was time for my grants to go out to the world. And my grants got pushed back and the grant got pushed back because they told me I needed to change the word people back to convict inmates or offenders. <sighs> and it was personal at that point, right? Yeah. Like, And I think I kind of played with it. I wordsmithed it. I didn't really do it as... And every time I tried to push my grant out the door, they would push it back. So I remember doing an all-staff meeting with career supervisor. And I said, well, why can't we push back? I'm used to an administration that was like, well, what do you think? You know, you had a voice. And she had been in federal government for years. And she said, you don't. You just ride the wave till it's over. And I remember saying, "That's I'm an advocate. I, I can't. Because it was dehumanizing. And I, I, I sat in a meeting with the new administration at the time. Uh, it was a special assistant to the president for criminal justice, um, the director of NIJ, National Institute of Justice. And they're having this conversation at the Eisenhower building, small conference room. We're all in there. And this director is bashing second chance and people having the ability to transform their lives. And it was just a waste of taxpayers' money. It became so personal that I knew I could not work in this environment because the people you were talking about, you were talking about me. You really were letting me know how you feel about me. You may not have known because you, you know, I hadn't shared all that with you. But when I saw what was happening, it, it was just, it was real hard to stomach. And if you're a true advocate fighting for change, I, I couldn't stand that administration. And what I tell people I was not a political appointee. I was literally a career person. So I walked away from a federal career when I walked away from the federal government. Yeah. And that's a pretty safe job forever. Exactly. That's what I said. I was like, you know, that's a safe job. People don't do that. My friends thought I was crazy. But, you know, I just told them I, I can't work where I'm miserable. I've been miserable long enough. And this is 70 million people have criminal backgrounds in this country. If we're not going to have a voice up in here, maybe my voice is louder on the outside, which has determined to be true. During the Trump administration, there was the passage of the First Step Act. I wonder how you viewed that, the politics of strange bedfellows there that actually got something through. What do you think of that act and what do you think of the politics of it? So let's start that the First Step Act wasn't created up under Trump. It was a more holistic bill that was created up under Obama that they snatched and dissected and pushed through under Trump. That passed in December of 2018. I left the federal government in June of 2018. And before I left the federal government, my team at the Department of Justice, we wrote a letter to the administration of how harmful First Step Act is to black and brown communities in this present stance. Um, so collectively, career people wrote a letter 
of the impact of this bill. When I left the federal government, I was one of the first organizations that came out against it, which surprised everybody. How could an organization founded by formerly incarcerated Rand not be against it? And it wasn't that we didn't support the pieces of the bill. There were really intricate details of that bill that was going to cause more harm than it was going to do good. So there was the retroactive of the crack to cocaine disparity. There was the elimination of the 929 clause, which is where federal prosecutors stack charges, right? But those have been practices the federal government had already stopped up under Obama and Holder's Office of Access to Justice. The part where First Step Act was harmful was research for second chance over the last 10 years had determined that resources and expenditures should go to people who are at high risk of reoffending once they're released. First Step Act implemented a clause that the people who get access to programs in the federal government to get additional time off their sentence are low-risk people. Black and brown people are never low-risk simply because of how our communities are over-policed, how our schools have more armed officers than social workers, right? There are things in a risk assessment that I could never change. I can never change the fact that I was incarcerated five times. I can never change the fact that I violated probation two times. Those are static fillers on a risk assessment that will always score you high. And here's an example that I like to use when we talk about community interaction with police. My son and your son steals our car. We both call the police. The police find your car, your kids, they park your car, they take your kids to the station, call you, tell them you come pick him up, right? Police find my car and my kid, they impound my car, take my kid to juvie, and I meet my kid in court. That interaction is now on my kid's record if he ever gets to prison to start getting points. Just how police interact with people is different and it plays a role on your risk assessment tool. Well, nobody expected COVID. So COVID hits and guess what they use to determine who gets released from federal prison? That risk assessment at a first step back. Who did you see go home? Flynn, Cohen. You didn't see African-Americans who've been serving time who were even at risk because we continue to score high. So you saw people who had just got sentenced to prison, did two months, and because of COVID and their low-risk status, were walking out of prison because of COVID. We have elderly people who have served 10 or 15 years who have respiratory diseases because of that risk assessment that First Step Act implemented are still sitting in prison. But your celebrities that pushed First Step Act was real fucking quiet during COVID, wasn't it? You talking about Van? Yep. Real quiet. Real quiet. Real quiet. There's a movie out right now. Just came out. I got out. a text today. Yep. yep. Somebody told me. Yep. Uh, I'd be curious what you think about that. I, I'm going to watch it. But, but here's the thing. And I don't blame Van because everybody, this is capitalist. This is around acknowledgement. I, I blame our communities of not educating advocates on the cultural competency of policy. Policy never benefits black and brown people. Hell, the 94 crime bill was a good policy when it was thought of. Nobody just knew the impact it was going to have on the actual communities. It's hard to know the unforeseen consequences of something. So you have to look at how does this going to play out in certain communities, right? And how, how do you read about it? There's been this disconnect from 
oh, it's going to free people. That's all we know. But no, you know, we can keep that part, but let's scratch this part. So even understanding how legislation work and how as an advocate, you are powerful. We redline bills all the time with legislators. Yeah. Well, and any bill like that, especially one that has to get through such a mixed political environment, including hardliners on incarceration, is going to be a compromise and imperfect and do some good things and some bad things. And that's what you're seeing, I'm sure. Well, and let's be honest, it was a bill, you know, we got the free, the crack, the cocaine disparities, the non-stacking. Yep. They got protection for when they go to prison so they can get out real quick. <laughs> Wonderful. I hope we can do better in the next round. I'm hoping. I'm hoping. So I'm curious about now you clearly leave the federal government not being happy with, with what they're doing. But you is just Leadership USA something that you start or is it something that you join? It's something I joined. Actually, a mentor of mine started Just Leadership. I actually was an alumni of the leadership training. And he stepped down from the organization after three years. And again, like I said, I was at the federal government. I was trying to figure it out. I really don't even think I thought about leaving. I was like, okay, I'm just going to close my office door and kick my feet up for four years, right? And see how this weighs out. But advocates and people who were directly started approaching me about it. Um, and he was a very prominent, charismatic person that I looked up to. And I was like, I can't do that. Um, I, I prefer not to have the FaceTime. I'll do the work behind the scenes. Can we, you know, and I started at propositioning. Can we do a co-directorship with someone else who wants the limelight? And they said, no, you know, this is the opportunity. So when I thought about what it was about, it was investing in people who had been directly impacted. It was investing in communities to empower them. And that's truly where my passion is. My passion is empowering people who have been in a hopeless state because what worked for me when you talked about the grit, not only was it the grit, I found my voice. I, um, not only did I find my voice, I found my voice and I knew I had a right to express it based on my experience. How do I translate that to other people? And if I could get a third of the 70 million, what power do we have? Because for too long, society has told us what we needed once we encountered a criminal justice system. But you don't ask the disability um, community what they need. You take them to the table. Well, now you do after they work real hard on getting there. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. So and that's where we're at. LGBTQ. How do how do you get identified? You rise up and you demand that change. So we train individuals to rise up and demand the change in the system that is causing us the most harm. And we need to be a part of that conversation. So for me, that was more powerful than anything. Not so much of what Deanna was doing, but how do you empower others and build collective leadership? So it's not about me. It's about us. So tell me, when you join Just Leadership USA, how big of an entity is that? What's the budget like? How many people work there? Just roughly like what are you coming into something with with some flesh on the bones or are you having to put it on? Both. So one of the things about Just Leadership um, they, it was founded on a leadership training and they launched the closed Rikers campaign, which threw them into national spotlight, asking for the most notorious jail in the country to be closed down. And they demonstrated when you train directly impacted people who have been impacted by Rikers to rise up, how that demand can transform a system. Right. So when I came in, it was well funded around advocacy and jail closure. 
it was well-funded around building the advocacy communities in certain areas. But it was a brand new organization. And what how I explained it to funders was, you guys gave the keys to a Corvette to a toddler. <laughs> so I got this... I got this beautiful, shiny tool, but I don't have the foundation and the skills necessary to carry it out. So when I came on board, we were slated to hire 50 people across the country. And I started scaling back. I started scaling back and building the infrastructure. And what I tell my team is we really flew a plane and built it at the same time. We had the name recognition, the brand Um, Our founder was awesome about marketing. I love how he marketed and positioned the organization. But we were like a big ship of how do we go from us running the campaigns to empowering the community to own the campaigns? And that has been the transformation we've made in the last three years. That's the same oppression we see across the country where people parachute in and say, hey, we're going to help you do this without even asking you what you need or what do you want help with? So now we provide the training and the tools and say, what are the issues in your areas that is funneling the criminal justice system that you want to address? Some people say, you know, bail reform. Some people, man, you'll be surprised. Some communities say just access to mental health and substance abuse, which is a foundation. So we help them build a campaign of how you campaign and advocate a city council during budget times. So we provide them the tools, but they own their issue, their campaign, we're just a tool that trains them across the country. So it was really well-funded. Don't get me wrong. I'll never deny that, that I was actually handed a nonprofit that most people would love to be in a position. We were funded like we were a 10 to 15-year-old organization, but we had to build the strategy and the infrastructure in place to maintain. So now we're three years in, We have a strategic plan. We know what our role is in the movement. And again, our role in this movement is to empower those communities most marginalized so their voices can be heard, their voices can be centered. And we lead on a national level and they lead within their states. Did you come in with that vision, with that like basic idea that that's the way this had to be done? Or did that develop over time after you came in? I came in thinking I was running an organization that looked real pretty. And once I got here, I was like, I did not sign up. <laughs> but no, that's the that that's the the fees of taking over any organization, right? Uh, how do you make it your own? How do you really identify? And it did. It took some sitting back and saying, what was this organization founded for? So I would research. I would look for white papers that he had presented. I would talk to people he talked to when he had this idea. And his concept of this organization was based on the premise of the absence of directly impacted people's leadership in power positions. So how do I center back on that? Right. You had that to access, not just that knowledge and that sort of ideology around it, but it was in the DNA of the organization to some extent. And that's why you wanted the job. Yeah. It sounds like it was still a multi-year effort to implement the change and refocus it. Is that right? And yeah, and it was really hard because, as you said, around funding, the funding came around the advocacy, right? The closed writers campaign that was national. And here I am talking about taking it back to this founding roots. So it was almost selling a brand new organization or reintroducing who we were. But I, I think we're there. The, the 
the benefit is the last three years and just the last year with the election allowed funders and other people, when I was talking about training and a lack of knowledge, to really see, oh, you're right. Oh, people don't know the difference between lobbying and electioneering. And foundation and other people, some funding doesn't allow that. But people were really struggling with the difference of understanding legislation and policy. How you advocate? How do you build champions? So now we're in a really good role where people are saying, we get it. We get it. I've read an article or two that indicates that the Biden administration is talking to you and to people like you and is thinking about reforming the power and power, is thinking about a lot of changes that have to do with incarceration and and other areas that you're that you specialize in. What are you seeing? How promising is it? What are you worrying about? I, I think it's very promising. It's a step in the right direction. And it's not just formally incarcerated, right? They're talking to every community. There are these issues. But what I tell the form, I'm part of a national committee called the Formerly Incarcerated and Convicted People's Movement. 13 formerly incarcerated people from across the country that we build up other organizations just as just leadership do. And what I share with them is, while everybody in the country has an issue that's important to them, no matter what it is, but also understanding what this administration inherited. We inherited a national pandemic on top of a racial unrest. And a major recession caused by the pandemic. And a major recession. And not only that, but also being very vulnerable to other countries and not really knowing what transpired. They have so much to fix. There was so much damage done, too. And that's the part I think the world doesn't see. You know, and I was like, I would have hate to have been in his shoes or even on his team and had to sit and say, what the hell do we do first? COVID is here, right? How do we get these vaccines out? How do we push to get these vaccines out? Because people are dying. But how do I do that even in the middle of addressing? I got to address this racial injustice going on, this racial thing that has surfaced, right? But I also got to keep my eye over here on Russia and all these other things because I don't know what the hell's going on over there. I don't know what's been undone, right? The G7 been disrupted. I got to mend those fences. I got this immigration issue going on. And then here we come, everybody else with our little one little issue, right? Yep. All of which are very, very important. Which are all very important. But, you know, and I posed it. I was like, so how do we choose? You know, and people are like, oh, I said, so the fact that we're even having conversations, the fact that there are specific people already working on issues, the restoring integrity to the pardon process after what happened this last go round is huge. There's one person working on that out of the White House is normally at DOJ. There's a person, assistant White House counsel is assigned to that. So I think it's very promising that we're even getting the conversations and that they are making movement. We've already seen some of the things we've asked for already implemented or moving down the line. So I say they're paying attention, but I would hate to be on that team right now. Given how much the elections in the midterm coming up and the next presidential election will impact the area that you work in, how do you stay out of politics given the type of organization or do you get into it? How do you navigate that 
monumental thing coming up that threatens a lot of progress? We have to stay bipartisan because I got to work with whoever's in shop. But I also work within a level of integrity. Like the last administration, the, the lack of integrity to me was not there. I refused to work with directly with the White House. But didn't mean I didn't work with other representatives. I work with Senator Rob Portman, a Republican, um, one of my biggest supporters in my career, my personal life as my representative for my area. But I could pick up the phone and call him. Then I could call the Democrats, Sherrod Brown. So you, you have to walk those lines because it's not, you know, there's this slogan called people over politics. This is about the people for us. And I believe the issue we're talking about is the issue we can walk down the line. But here's the expertise, who you're talking to and how you talk to them. So I know if I'm talking to Democrats, I'm talking about the ability to have social services and resources that are needed for individuals. If I'm talking to Republicans, I'm talking dollars. Same issue. Yeah, they have a different vocabulary for thinking about policy. And that's part of a skill set that we have to translate to our community while we're talking hearts and minds I got to add the cost factor of what this is costing us. I also got to talk the resource part of it. And that's how I build the value positions when I'm having a conversation. So, Deanna, where are you going to take this? What's the plan going forward? What's the vision? And is this something you want to keep doing for a long time or not? So I know I'm committed for the next three years to continue to building community grassroots power I think we're getting ready to see a devastation in the, the next election. We're already seeing voter disenfranchisement laws on the books. Georgia has implemented Jim Crow laws. So while we think we've taken some steps forward, we're seeing our democracy be rolled back in just our right and our ability to vote in the way these laws are coming up. But what I do appreciate is that the next three years does not have to be narrowly focused on criminal justice that the last year, and thanks to President Trump, so I do thank him for one thing, he pulled the cover off of racism that black and brown people knew never went away and how other people would tell us to get over it. Now, nobody can say it doesn't exist. It's prominently and it's evident that it exists. So I think looking at things from a racial justice perspective of how despaired sentencing happens, how despaired policing happens, right? You know, the world saw George Floyd get murdered, but black and brown people have been seeing George Floyd's every day in our communities. It was just a normal, but the world saw it. So now we get to address it from the world instead of our little isolated states and localities. And I think we have to. We can't do what history has done is getting a civil rights act that really didn't give us any freedom we thought we did and then wait another 20 years to only realize we're still being harmed and rise up. My granddaughter is in the streets with signs. I think we have to keep our foot on the pedal around this racial justice and keep it moving from this because if not, we're going to continue to revisit this every 20 years like we've already been doing. Are you more uh, fearful or more hopeful about our future as a country in these areas? I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm kind of fearful because of the damage of the last administration. We just don't. We don't even know the damage. And I think that's where most of my fear is. And the reason I'm fearful because of what he exposed, he half this country voted for him. So that means half this country has that same destructive thinking as he had. 
I don't know if it does mean exactly that. I hope it doesn't quite mean that. I think there's a lot of people who voted for a lot of different reasons and they weren't all just him playing his racist card, which he clearly played. But, you know, I, I know too many people that know too many people that voted the wrong way, the really wrong way, you know, that aren't bad people, I hope. Right. You know, so uh, it's complicated. I guess my thing on that is we're, you know, cell phones are busy and maybe it's because cell phones is exposing it. We're all paying attention. But that's my fear that, you know, where people couldn't do certain things or, you know, you could feel one kind of way. You could say one thing in your house. But now people are blatantly out challenging people or accusing people, uh, especially black young men. That's the scary part for me, right? Because they've been given this open card to do it openly now. They have, but at the same time, so many, particularly young people, have been educated by his evil to be the opposite. And I think there's a whole generation coming up that's pushing in different direction than Trump moved the country or exposed what was going on in the country. I'm hopeful about that. And I agree with you on that. And I think one of the access points, and we've been doing this strategically, is having this conversation on college campuses. Because that's where that person leaves their home, where they've been believing one thing and they get to college and they're exposed to different things. And you're watching this awakening happen, right? There's a whole movement around that. I agree with you. I, I think there's transformation happening in attitudes and what happened around Floyd's murder and the reaction is a big part of that. It really affected a lot of people. Yeah, so I guess I, I have some fears. But I do have hope that we as a country can can unite. It sure depends on what we do. Is there a question that I should have asked that I didn't? And you might have hit on it, and I don't know if I was able to go down. But why is just leadership so important in this moment? Why is it? And just leadership is important in this moment. Again, when we talked about centering the voices of those most impacted, again, the communities that have been most marginalized and most oppressed, most impoverished, have never been in position of leadership to actually design those policies, design those strategies, even have their voices heard um, in how, what the needs of their community is. I always say we talk about public safety, but has anybody went to the hood to ask the hood what they need to feel safe? Our voices have to be a part of this conversation as well. Well, it's every citizen should be part in governing the, their area. I mean, that's the whole promise of the system of democracy that we're supposed to have. There's talent everywhere. There was talent in the prison with you, as you know, right? We ran a Fortune 500 company. We can't waste that. It's, yeah, it's a tragedy. We ran a Fortune 500 company. Yep. Well, Deanna, total honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? Thank you for uh, taking the time to have this conversation and actually, you know, providing it for your audience that our voices do matter. So thank you for honoring our voices. That was Deanna Hoskins. She's at JLUSA.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.